Thank you for joining us again as we take a look at our favorite one-hit wonders from the past. Today we're taking a look at a deep cut from 1968. That's right, by an artist, Tiny Tim, the song called Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Hold on to your hat, folks. We're in for a wild ride. Honestly speechless after that one, Mark. Yeah, are, are you sure that was a hit? Next up, another one-hit wonder from the New Testament, Second John. The second is never better than the first. Never as good as the first. Never good, never, never as good. Well... I'm sure some of you may be too young to recognize the name of musician and singer Tiny Tim, and you probably thought Tiptoe Through the Tulips was some kind of gardening jingle. Folks, I'm telling you, this was serious art back in the late 1960s. And would you believe that that warbling falsetto is Pastor Patrick Garcia's normal singing voice? And, and uh, so he was perfect for this one-hit wonder video. And I want you to take a look at this picture. Now, are these identical twins separated at birth or what? I'm just saying. <laughs> By the way, a few weeks back, I hosted in weekend worship, and some of you may remember in the, in uh, that service where I hosted, that I, I literally uh, ripped the buttons off my shirt and exposed a bright red high school ministries t-shirt. Well, this week I want to be more dignified, and I want to just unbutton my shirt and support our Crossroads Middle School <laughs> ministry. As you know, right now we are uh, making a concerted effort to develop a strong partnership with parents as a strategy for elevating and accelerating discipleship and spiritual growth in our teens. Well, next Sunday is August the 23rd, and on August 23rd there will be a very important middle school parents meeting. So if you have a middle school child, please, please make this meeting. Next Sunday, August 23rd, a high priority. Okay, this weekend we're studying the third of five Bible books that have just one chapter. We began with the book of Obadiah in the Old Testament two weeks ago, and then last weekend the letter of Philemon in the New Testament, and today we come to 2 John. So turn there with me or cue it up on your device right now. I think it's page 863 in your pew Bibles. And once again, just hold that and let me give you a little background information before we read this text. The author of this letter is simply identified as the elder, but 
both the external and the internal evidence leave no doubt that it is the Apostle John. The youngest of the 12 apostles, the brother of James. Jesus nicknamed James and John. You may remember the sons of thunder because of their fiery temperaments. They were fishermen. They were employed by their own father, Zebedee, along with Peter and Andrew. And all four of them were called by Jesus to change their vocation and to stop being fishermen and to become fishers of men. John was the last surviving apostle, probably in his 80s when he died, and he's the only apostle that died of natural causes. All of the other apostles died as martyrs for Christ. And the letter of 2 John, verse 1, begins, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love, which I suppose might have been a literal reference to a prominent Christian woman who hosted a church in her home. So the children would have been the believers who were a part of her house church. But the final verse in 2 John, verse 13 says, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings. So the chosen lady in verse 1, the chosen sister in verse 13 are references that are most likely symbolic and are a reference to two different churches. And besides, the content of this letter is not personal, it is applicable to a congregation. And in these last years of the first century, the church was facing big-time adversity. Persecution had become intense externally. And internally, false teachers claiming to have special knowledge called Gnostics were attempting to deceive believers into turning away from the simple message of Jesus. Now, the recipients of this letter would have been new Christians, would have been first-generation Christians. These people had come out of a background of paganism and atheism and mysticism and polytheism, to follow Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, to be on mission with Jesus. And many of you in our audience this morning and in the chapel are first-generation Christ followers. And I want you to know how much I respect you. I want you to know how much I admire you for grafting in a new branch on your family tree. And Daryl Marin, the man our elders have called, and we're asking you to affirm today as our family pastor, he's a first-generation Christian. I'm excited to introduce him to you toward the end of our service this morning. Well, once again this morning, I want to ask you to follow along in your printed text. I want to read these 13 verses of 2 John, and if you watch the screen, I want you to pay special attention to the underlying phrases in 2 John in these 13 verses. Here we go. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, 
that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Well, living a God-honoring life is metaphorically referred to in 2 John as a walk, a walk. It's living your life day by day with certain values, certain priorities, certain convictions. And the first such reference we have is a description of a godly man. Actually, in Genesis chapter 5, it's verse 24, talks about a man named Enoch who walked with God or walked faithfully with God. So his daily walk with God was so deep and so true, he didn't experience death. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for the Lord took him. His walk with God was so deep and true, he didn't experience death. He was translated from earth into the presence of God without experiencing death. Then in verses like Deuteronomy 10, 12, we read, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk, here it is, to walk in all his ways. Proverbs 8, 20. I walk in the way of the righteous. And then again, in Proverbs 10, 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. And there are many, many more references like this. So here's the point, friend. If you are alive today and sucking air, you are walking and in 2 John, we're taught to walk in the truth, to walk in obedience, and to walk in love. Now, in 2 John, it just looks like these are all kind of smooshed together. And what I want to do is separate them and talk about each one. I want to talk, first of all, about what it means to walk in the truth. Verse 4, John said, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Well, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus at his illegal trial, what is truth? <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. He was not asking for information. He was asking in derision. He had decided there is no such thing as absolute truth. So you see, he would fit right in with the prevailing attitudes about truth today. Pontius Pilate would fit right in to the 21st century because by a three-to-one margin, adults today believe that all truth is relative, that it changes, 
that it evolves according to societal norms of thinking and behavior, and the margin is even more lopsided today among young people in their teens and 20s. In other words, we the people will make the determination about what's true and acceptable with the understanding that it may be reevaluated and it may be recast and redefined by the next generation. So now, the populace in each generation will make their moral and ethical decisions on the basis of what seems right or what feels right. And this was exactly the condition on the earth prior to the flood in Genesis 6. It says the thoughts and imaginations of people's hearts were continually evil, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And today, the Bible is being politely ignored or rudely rejected by many, and we've witnessed the effects of this in recent years, just in my lifetime. Abortion in one generation is a sin against God. It is a prosecutable murder of the unborn. In the next generation, it's federally funded. Buying, selling, and smoking marijuana, a mind-numbing drug, is a crime in one generation. In the next generation, it's a legal recreational drug. Living together unmarried, considered immoral in one generation, but in the next generation, it's a widespread practice. It's the next step after steady dating. Same-sex marriage, considered to be the ultimate family demise by one generation, but it's celebrated as a new expression of civil freedom by the next. Homosexual activity can be considered unnatural and indecent in one generation, but elevated to normality in the next. Sex reassignment surgery can be considered perverse in one generation, but can land you on the cover of national magazines and earn you the Arthur Ashe Courage Award in the next. Let's just be honest, folks. Our generation does not know the truth or love the truth or walk in the truth, and it troubles me. It troubles me greatly that we're not leaving a reliable foundation of absolute truth for our children and our grandchildren to build their futures on. I feel a lot like the psalmist expressed in Psalm 11, verse 3. It's like he's wringing his hands, and he says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, in context, that psalm is talking about truth, and it's talking about righteousness, and it's talking about justice. When the foundations of these things are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And listen, there's something else here in our text that we tend to overlook from the Apostle John. He says that to walk in the truth is to guard the truth or to protect the truth. Look again at uh, 2 John verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for. If anyone comes to you 
and does not bring this teaching, that is, that Jesus is God in flesh, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. So how do we apply this to the 21st century? That was written in the first century. How do we apply it now 2,000-plus years later? Here's how. If a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon comes to your door, you must understand they do not believe that Jesus is God coming in the flesh. And they represent a threat to you and to your family. And you could lose what you've worked for. So do not invite them into your house or welcome them. Now, be polite, be gracious, but beware. Do not invite them in. It's this serious. If you welcome them into your house, you are inadvertently sharing in their wicked work. Protect the most basic truth of the gospel, friends. Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and do not expose yourself or your family to deceivers. Now, one of the best examples of protecting the truth or guarding the truth that I've ever heard was by news broadcaster Britt Hume. He was commenting on the future of golfer Tiger Woods after his adultery came to light, and Hume predicted that Woods might recover as a golfer, which he has not, But here's what he said. This is Britt Hume. Whether he, that is Tiger Woods, can recover as a person depends on his faith. He's said to be a Buddhist. I don't think that faith offers the forgiveness and redemption that is offered in the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to Christ, and you can make a total recovery, and you can be a great example to the world. Well, then he was asked to comment further. And Hume said, Tiger Woods is someone I've always rooted for as a golfer and as a man. He's paying a frightful price for his unfaithfulness, and I expect he's lost his family. He needs something that only Christianity provides. Jesus Christ offers Tiger Woods something that he badly needs, and if he were to make a true conversion, it would be a magnificent thing to witness. Have you noticed that any time a person mentions the name of Jesus, that all hell breaks loose? Why is this? It's because the world is under the influence of the evil one and is opposed to Jesus Christ. Later, when Brett Hume retired from broadcasting in 2008, he was interviewed by the Hollywood Reporter, and the reporter asked him what he was going to do with all his free time now that he was retired, and here's what he said. I certainly want to pursue my faith more seriously than I have. I'm not saying it's impossible to do when you work in this business, but I was kind of a part-time Christian for the longest time. But when my son died by suicide in 1998, I came to Christ in a way that was very meaningful to me. If a person is a Christian, it's a full-time thing. If you do it part-time, you're not really living it. Now, these are the words of a man who is walking in the truth. These are the words of a man who is guarding the truth. Do you walk in the truth?
Secondly, do you walk in obedience? Take a look at verse 6, 2 John verse 6, and this is love that we walk in obedience to His commands. Folks, God's plan to save us is really very simple. Here it is. God loves us, and He wants to return His love. Boom, there it is. 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first loved us. It's just that pure. It's just that simple. That's why Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us has a more urgent priority than this. But how do we test the genuineness of our love for Him? Maybe that's a good question. Well, verse 6 clarifies it. This is love. This is love that we walk in obedience to His command, His commands. So I don't, I don't care who you are, where you've been in life. This is true for everyone from the least to the greatest. Walk in obedience. Need more? John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said in John 14, 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord? Lord, and do not do what I say. Now, right after he declared this, he told the parable of the wise and foolish builders. And the only difference between these two builders is the foundations on which they built their houses. And Jesus said, Whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who constructs his house on a rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck the house, would not be shaken because it was well built. And then he said, whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish builder who constructed his house on the sand. And the moment the storm struck, that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Now, what strikes me here is the inevitability of being struck by a torrent. The words just jump right off the page to say, everyone without exception will have their house tested by a storm of some kind. No one escapes. And whether we stand firm or whether we are devastated, destroyed, depends on whether we have walked in obedience to His Word. But walking in obedience is not just a matter of obeying God's Word. It's also a matter of obeying God's Spirit because the Lord does speak to us in His Word, but He also speaks to us through the voice of our own conscience. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, you got this huge list of commands, this huge list of do's and don'ts. And in that chapter, Ephesians 4, it says, don't be insincere, don't tell lies, don't get angry easily, don't stay angry a long time, don't steal, don't cheat, work hard, be generous, watch your mouth, don't slander or hate, be compassionate and kind, forgive others, imitate God, discipline yourself sexually in thought and speech and behavior, don't be deceived, don't get into deeds of darkness, don't get drunk and buried right Right in the middle of this litany of do's and don'ts, smack in the middle, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says it this way, do not put out, do not quench 
the Spirit's fire. Well, how do we do that? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do we put out the Spirit's fire? One way. Simple disobedience. You get into a lifestyle of disobedience, you're going to silence the voice of the Holy Spirit within you. You disregard His soft prompting when He speaks to your inner man, your inner woman, about what is right and what is wrong, and through the voice of your conscience, you will grieve Him. And if you stop listening to Him long enough, He will stop talking to you. And you've heard of people who are said to be without conscience. They're out there in ever-swelling numbers, serial killers. How do they... How do they do that? Victim after victim, innocent after innocent, snuffing out lives wantonly, carelessly. Pedophiles. Zeroing in on innocent, defenseless children. How, how do they do that? Meth users. They look in the mirror and they see their bodies wasting away. They are destroying themselves. They're bent on it. They're without conscience. How did that happen? How does a person get to the point that they don't have a, con a conscience? Willful disobedience. It will grieve the Holy Spirit, extinguish His fire in you. Walk in truth, walk in obedience, finally walk in love. That's also verse 6. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you, here it is, walk in love. And to walk in love is to actively and demonstrably love God as your pathway in daily life. And it involves action. It is not a matter of profession. Saying you love God, praying you love God, it's not enough. You've got to walk. Walk in love. It involves action. So loving God shows itself in our daily and weekly worship. Loving God shows itself in our bold witness for Jesus. Loving God shows itself in our life of service, our generosity. Loving God includes controlling our time and money investment in hobbies and sports and possessions and shopping and entertainment. Nothing wrong with any of these things. Hobbies, sports, possessions, shopping, entertainment, they're all fine. Nothing wrong with them, but they've got to be carefully monitored as indicators of your love for God. And walking in love with others or for others we all know what that looks like. We know how to demonstrate love for people. So let's talk rather about what keeps us from doing what we know to do to express love to others. What is it that holds us up, that aborts that love being lived out, being expressed? Well, it's, it's a word, one word, selfishness. That's what, that's what it is. We tend to enthrone our own wants and our own passions, and we expect others to take care of themselves. Pastor Tim Keller says that the essence of self-love is captured in the words of the song, Let It Go, from the Disney movie Frozen. The song is sung by the main character, Elsa. 
She's determined, according to the lyrics in the song, no longer to be a good girl. Instead, she'll let go and express what she's been holding back inside. And the lyrics in that song say in one passage, No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And I feel like a killjoy criticizing this song that my youngest granddaughter used to sing constantly. But I think Keller has a point. This idea that your identity can only be realized by disconnecting from the ideals and values of your parents or traditional society or maybe your church, that we only become ourselves by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of how it affects anyone else, it's an illusion. And in the film, Frozen, Elsa finds that out. And the song that she sang, Let It Go, as her life path didn't work out like she thought it would. And she returned home. Keller calls this the assertiveness of the sovereign self. There's a lot of it going on in our generation. The assertiveness of the sovereign self. It might sell a song. It might sound good. But it didn't work for Elsa in the movie. She tried it. She came back home. And it doesn't work for anybody else in life either. If you're caught up in yourself, you cannot cannot walk in love for God and for others. You've got to get over yourself if you're going to walk in love. Well, I've got to close. Let me do it this way. Did you catch the word chosen in verse 1 and also in verse 13? It's also translated elect. That's what we do when we elect somebody, isn't it? We choose them. Well, the word is used to describe not only the church, but also the individual Christian. And I've got good news this morning. He has chosen every one of us. He's chosen us. It's true. But we must choose him. In order to have a relationship, there must be this mutual choice. It's a covenant relationship. It's rather like marriage. If you've got one person who won't commit, there's not going to be a wedding. If we're to be, here it is, if we are to be His elect, then He must be our elect. And if He is, we'll want to walk in truth, and we'll want to walk in obedience, we'll want to walk in love. So if you want to choose Jesus today, or if you want to choose to be a part of Crossroads today, We're going to look forward to talking to you at the conclusion of this service this morning. Will you pray with me? Our Father, uh, this universe is no accident. And the majesty and wonder of humanity, its creation, is no accident. Such purpose and order in it all. And uh, it's all about you making us the objects of your love and giving us the opportunity to love you and, and putting the skin on it, making it real in Jesus. And this morning, Father, we 
we want to live the life that will honor you and bless us most. And that's life in the sun, walking in truth, walking in obedience, walking in love. Help us to do it so others will see in us what they want for themselves and be attracted to Jesus, the Lord of life. In his name we pray. Amen.